Welcome to Frontiers of Faith, the podcast of the Pontifical Mission Societies. I am Katie Rubalcaba, and we are back again this week with the lovely and talented, uh, little-known fact, Father uh, Anthony Andreasi is also a backup dancer for Taylor Swift. How was the Super Bowl, Father Anthony? Well, I wasn't expecting that question, so <laughs> I, I think I'll have to consult legal counsel on it before I respond. So, uh, but thank you for that introduction. Totally joking. He has never been a backup dancer for Taylor yeah, Swift, but uh, we all remember Left Shark from a few Super Bowls ago. I'm not saying it's not Father Anthony, is what I'm saying. How has your Lent been going as a more like reasonable question for you? Um, you know, we've been, I, I'm, I'm not sure if we mentioned this on an earlier episode, um, what we were recording in, in previous weeks, but I've been doing a, um, a Friday fast with some of the young men from my parish. We, we tweaked it just a little bit in years past. We did it from sunup to sundown, sort of kind of playing off, um, playing off of, of what Muslims do during Ramadan yeah. this year. We're doing it from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So if you get up before 6, you can have a little, you know, you can have breakfast. And um, and uh, so on on Ash Wednesday, I have to confess, I somebody handed me a fresh strawberry and I just ate it. And it was really good. And I was like, oh, I wasn't supposed to eat that. But as I preached recently about our Lenten disciplines, we can learn a lot when we fail at them, too. So, I mean, obviously, this is not like an athletic contest to see how many badges we can get. But these these disciplines are done for various reasons, including that when we fail, uh, we can learn a lot about ourselves. So, so far, so good, I would say, with a little tentatively. I don't want to get proud about this. <laughs> so how about you, so Katie? You know, I so I failed to plan appropriately and ended up planning to be on vacation during the week that um, uh, that Lent started. So on Ash Wednesday, I was in Hawaii. Um, and I spent the entire time that I was there thinking to myself, like, oh, my goodness, I've completely I, I've ruined Lent. Lent is it just started. I've already ruined it, which is totally the wrong mindset to have. Um, but the Lord provided a nice head cold that week so that I was not enjoying my vacation to Hawaii, uh, which was fantastic. Uh, I appreciate God for really stepping it up there. Uh, but in uh, just in general, I, I'm one of those people that does not look down on the giving up of sweets. Um, I think that that's a, it's a decent um, thing. And I know it's kind of silly to a lot of people because they'll say things like, oh, our Lord was on a cross, but you gave up chocolate. But in the past, I've given up other things that um, seemed like a bigger deal um, to people. Like I, um, I once donated my entire income uh, for the the period of Lent. Not to be fair, I'm a stay at home mom who does internet stuff for a living. But so it wasn't a huge amount of money. But that didn't really affect me a whole lot. In fact, I think it might have made me prideful because I was like, "Look at me! I did this thing, even though it was actually very small." But the little tiny mortification of not eating that stinking brownie at the Knights of Columbus fish fry is terrible. It's so much harder for me. So I have, I, I really lean into the giving up of sweets. I know it's silly. I, I don't know. I don't think it's, in fact, I just came across on Twitter or whatever we call it now. Um, in 1884, uh, the bishops of the United States met in council, the third council of Baltimore and this is what they decreed what Catholics could have for Lent. Now, I'm pretty sure it's not clear if this was only on Fridays, 
So I, I'm not if it was even if it was just on Fridays, it said so. There's um, three three parts to it. Two. This is for breakfast. Two ounces of butter, a bread, no butter, with coffee or tea in the morning. Okay, you could have a full meal at lunch, and eight ounces of meatless food in the evening. Oh, okay. So this must have been every day. So, so you could have. Because they don't say the full meal at lunch at noon couldn't have meat. So this must have been apart from Wednesdays and Fridays. So that was a pretty vigorous fast wow. in 1884. And, and, and just remember that the vast majority of American Catholics at that point were doing manual labor jobs. Yeah, we, they, were not, they were not sitting like you and I and uh, doing podcasts. I know. They were working on the railroad. So, yeah, that it is something worth remembering. Gosh, I sometimes I think about that and, and wonder, is our faith less now? Is it are we doing are we are we wimpy Catholics by comparison or is it just a difference in how the world is like our struggles are just different? Because on the one hand, they're not eating and working on a railroad. But on the other hand, I'm aware of all of the suffering that happens all around the world all the time because of the Internet. And I wonder, is this a is this a lesser or is this just a difference? What do you think? Um, I'm, I'm still, I think it is, uh, you know, I go back to this, what then Father Barron said years ago, he gave a great little piece on Cartesian dualism. And he thinks one of the great problems of modern, early modern Catholicism, early modern world was this separation of the body from the soul. And, you know, he just often talks about how the only way to get to the soul is through the body. Hmm. Um, and I still believe that those bodily practices like fasting, you know, like certain postures of prayer are critical, are crucial um, to our experiencing of the divine. In the next world, it will be different. And I don't know what it's like there because neither you or I have been there yet. But in this world, I do think, um, yeah, I also hear your point about, um, and I think it's, 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 a, it's not necessarily a good thing. You know, in our ancestors in 1884 only learned about news through the newspaper and news took a while and you didn't hear about everything and they weren't consumed with it. So we have more pressure on us, emotional pressure on us, anxiety. We all know that. But um, I don't know. The larger question, I think when we... Tr- when we think the body and soul are not related to each other, um, especially in terms of our spiritual life, I think it's it's not a good thing. Yeah. The dualism concept, if you look around just in the comment sections on the Internet, oftentimes you'll find people who are accidental dualists, like even even very uh, devout Catholics or Christians will say things about like, oh, your your body has sinned, but your soul has not. Or they'll they'll separate their their body and their soul in that way. And honestly, I think you're right. That might be the great the greatest trouble facing um, Christians in the world today is that dualism is such a accepted thing. I know very, very good Catholics who will say things like your body is just a car that you drive and your soul is what matters. And that's completely contrary to our faith. You said something a second ago that I want to, I don't want to gloss over because it's, um, it's sort of radical. You don't hear about it a lot. You were talking about postures of prayer. What do you mean by that? What are some of the different postures of prayer that we might take? 
Oh, I mean, um, you know, obviously kneeling as, as a form of prayer. I could tell a little anecdote. Uh, in 2008, I brought a group of young people to uh, Australia for World Youth Day with Pope Benedict in 2008. And as part of the many World Youth Day activities, uh, we visited the shrine of the woman who, I can't remember if she had just been canonized or was about to be the first Australian person to be canonized, Mother Mary McKillop. So we go through this whole exhibit about her life and her ministry. And then the ultimately, and there were sisters there, you know, very nicely introducing us. And, and then we ultimately came to her tomb where she was buried. And we almost, I would say almost instinctively, the group of 12 or 14 of us almost naturally went on our knees when we got to that tomb. It just felt like in the presence of this holiness, you do something different. Yeah. Because, um, and you know, and I, you know, this is a great C.S. Lewis line, you know, we posture, you know, in prayer. If you don't feel like you're in the mood to pray, well, sometimes kneel down because actually putting yourself in a different posture what brings up different feelings inside of us. And again, that's the whole, you know, if you think posture doesn't matter, then, um, you know, then lay on your bed when you, when you pray and, you know, most times we're going to fall asleep. It's yeah. probably not a great idea. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, the old uh, parrot, can you pray while you're lying down? Of course, the Lord is open to us praying while we're laying down. But it may not be the most helpful place for us to do that. So I do believe posture is very important. That is a great point. I went with a, a group from my my parish to the Holy Land a couple of years ago when it was a little bit safer to be there. And um, we all went to the Holy Sepulchre. And when you get to go into the tomb of Christ, we had the exact same experience, every single one of us. And you can only fit two people in there at a time. It's a very, very small tomb. But every single one of us, as soon as you walk in there, just hit the deck. Like there's no, there's no standing in those, in those places. And you're right. It is a very natural thing to change your posture in front of holiness. That's, that's a good point. Um, well, we're about to talk about a woman who was in a very interesting posture in uh, in front of our Lord in the readings from this week. But I want to take a second because there's a little something interesting about the way the readings are set up this year. Can you um, can you tell us our listeners if they're not aware what's going on with this year A year B situation? Sure. You know, I think most of our listeners know that um, you know since the Vatican Council and the reform of the liturgy, we have a three year cycle of readings on Sundays, and then a two-year cycle of readings on the weekdays, ABC for the Sundays. And um, and that's even true during Lent. Um, though very often the A cycle readings are used regularly during Lent, if not every year during Lent, because the several of the Sundays, three, four, five, I believe, uh, just off the top of my head, I think it's three, four, five, um, are readings that are specifically chosen because of the central role that catechumens play in the life of Lent. In fact, we really only have Lent because of the catechumens. You know, in the early church, this period of preparation and purification for the baptism of new of new people that preceded Easter, um, and then shortly thereafter, the whole Christian community said, "Well." If they're doing it, this might be a good time for me to sort of recommit myself to everything. So that's how Lent sort of began 
but it really is all about the catechumens. Now, many parishes don't have, and I'll be just very precise about catechumens. These are people who are not yet baptized. Sometimes we have candidates who are following these. These would be people who were baptized in other ecclesial communions. So their baptism is valid, but now they're going to be receiving the full communion and receive um, the other two sacraments of initiation. Um, but really, the catechumens are the main event. They are the prize of, of Lent. <laughs> and um, so, so parishes that have catechumens almost always go to the year, the readings for, for A. So we're going to hear, obviously, the reading for A today, the woman at the well. Perfect. That's I didn't know that that was where the the scrutiny year came from. So that was extremely helpful for me. I love it. Um, and I, I thank you for through. saying uh, scrutiny too. I forgot I should have used that word. Thank oh, you. that's okay. Um, yeah. When we were when I was coming into the church shows, I, I'm a convert myself. You made me think of a guy who came in with me. His name was Jeff. We called him Question Jeff because during um, RCIA, the man had so many questions. Um, but it was like down to the wire on Easter Vigil whether or not he was going to actually come into the church. And so when you say that the uh, the catechumens are the prize of Easter, uh, I'm going to go tell Jeff that. He's going to be a big fan of that that wording. Okay, so our uh, our reading then is going to be coming from John chapter four, and we're going to read the shorter version. Um, it is quite long, um, but we're going to read the the truncated version here. Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down there at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? For Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered, her and, answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you do not even have a bucket, and the cistern is deep. Where then can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this cistern and drank from it himself with his children and his flocks? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I shall give will never thirst. The water I shall give him will become in him, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you people say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, believe me, woman, the hour is coming when you will worship the father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You people worship what you do not understand. We worship what we understand because our salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And indeed, the Father seeks such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us everything. Jesus said to her, I am the one who is speaking. I am he, the one who is speaking with you. Many of the Samaritans of that town began to believe in him. When the Samaritans came to him, they invited him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more began to believe in him because of his word. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe because of your word, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. 
wow, there's yes, there's a lot in that. Um, what what do you take out? Well, a couple of maybe prefatory remarks is I think if I was um, you know working with uh, the, uh, RCIA or really now we're supposed to call it OCIA. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, um, I would actually ask <clears throat> the candidates to to I maybe say them why do you think this reading is so important um, for catechumens? I you know kind of get to why why do you think the church for millennia has said wow. This is one of the three readings we're going to put front and center as you get closer and closer to baptism. That would be an interesting thing. Another thing that comes to mind is um, just this past weekend, obviously the first Sunday of Lent, it was the very short Mark reading of um, Jesus in the desert. Truth be told, I like the Lucan version better because Mark is just so quick and to the point. I like a little more drama in him. um, But um, I mentioned that... um, while I mentioned that in the early church, arguably the two of the church's greatest fathers of the church, greatest theologians, a friend of mine is a patristic scholar, and he would argue that Augustine and Origen are the greatest of the early fathers of the church. And they both would have said that while literally a literal reading of the text is appropriate, but there are three other readings of texts that when a Christian reads the scriptures, we should have those have that operate. In fact, just the literal, if we only stop at the literal, that's a real impoverishment. So <clears throat> I would, I would, I would really like to unpack all the symbolism yeah. in this text. And one of them is of course, how there's a process that this woman is coming to have faith in Jesus. It's not instantaneous. And <clears throat> it brings up to, to mind that um, the process that catechumens go through, and then arguably our own continuing conversion toward Christ, which is not a once and for all sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So uh, those are some of the things that, but, you know, there are so many symbols and richness in this text. So what, what comes to mind for you, Katie? So this is one of my mom's um, favorite verses, uh, favorite passages in the Bible. She's a Protestant. Um, But for her, it's very much a question of whether or not um, people who are unworthy can approach Christ. And this is something that she's talked about uh, to me a lot in her life as she, you know, she's been divorced before and, and whether or not she feels it's appropriate at times in her life for her to be in the presence of God. And so whenever I hear this particular um, passage, it reminds me of the people who are on the outside and maybe, you know, like you're saying a catechumen, but more to the point, somebody who knows Jesus is coming, you know, she says, you know, I know that there's going to be a Messiah. So to me, I I feel for the people who are aware of Christ, who love Christ, but who are feeling separated from him at this time of year. And this is, you know, kind of a great season for that because we have, you know, the call from the church to come to, um, to confession and absolution through Christ and to spend time in his church and to purify ourselves and be part of that Easter celebration. So it's a it's very similar to the what you're talking about with the catechumens and and coming to know Christ. But these are to me, it always speaks to the people who who want to just be closer to Christ. They know him, but they're not like close, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um you had mentioned the symbolism that was in here. Is there is there a specific symbol that you like anything that you think that our listeners would take away that would be maybe the best symbol? 
Well, I mean, you know, the one, of course, uh, water is just so, uh, so powerful because <clears throat> both it's the waters of baptism, but it's also water that, that, um, that literally keeps us alive, <clears throat> but also water as sometimes, you know, as a powerful, dis- almost, um, I'm going to say destructive force, but a force that actually can sometimes bring around new life. You think about, um, you know, the reading this past Sunday about Noah. So water destroyed, you know, wa- the waters of the flood destroyed what was evil before so that a new garden, a new life could come forward. So I think, I mean, I think that would be the um, the go-to one. Um, would it just be water, you know? Yeah, I think I'm with you on that. When we were talking earlier about dualism, um, I think that that's an easy come away that people have when they look at this, when they're saying, you know, we worship in spirit and truth and that the Father is spirit and things like that. But the whole verse is about a bodily need, uh, a water, the, the, you know, the drawing of that water and having that living within them. So when we were talking about that dualism before, I think that it's easy to accidentally fall into that when looking at this, if you don't look at it holistically and look at that symbol of, of water as a, a giving of life, of the taking away of life, all of those things that you just mentioned, it's a big, big thing that you have to consider in there without just thinking that it's all in your brain, your, your you and Jesus kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely beautiful. Well, thank you for taking the time to go over this with us this week, Father. Oh, wow. Sorry? No, I said, oh, wow, is my honor. No, absolutely. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are always delighted to have you here, and we are so thankful that you spent the time with us. And um, do you have any other parting blessings or words for our, our listeners before we let them go? Well, this, uh, you know, this upcoming Sunday, the thir- third Sunday of Lent, um, we're getting close to the midway through Lent. Um, you know, we're getting Leitare Sunday, which is the following Sunday. You know, it's, I believe it's the liturgical norms say we can actually have flowers on Leitare Sunday. I know that's true for Advent. Um, I might have to check my, my books on that for Lent. Uh, but, um, but, you know, the Lent comes from ultimately the Anglo-Saxon word to lengthen, like spring is coming, lengthening. So the days are getting longer. In fact, we'll be putting the clocks ahead soon. Um, so I guess just a word of encouragement to us, because sometimes this time of year, I know with, with the days still very dark, especially here in the northern hemisphere and the farther north you go, it can be tough. And winter still roars now and again. Um, so, you know, let us continue to hold one another in prayer so that for each of us, <clears throat> this spiritual journey, this spiritual pilgrimage of Lent will be a period of learning, of growth, but ultimately of of transformation as we all, please God, come to meet the risen Christ on Easter Sunday. Thank you again, Katie. Amen. And thank you for learning and growing with us here on Frontiers of Faith. Share the podcast with your friends. We would love to have them on uh, to listen with us each week. Thank you so much for being here, and we will see you guys next week.
Frontiers of Faith is a podcast of the Pontifical Mission Societies, produced by Katie Ruvalcaba. Theme music by Ethan Stevie. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Faith underscore Frontiers and at Frontiers of Faith on Facebook and Instagram. To support the work of the Pontifical Mission Societies, please go to onefamilyinmission.org to donate.